Welcome to the Freedom Frontline Podcast. As always, this podcast will be completely raw, completely unfiltered, and completely uncensored. Today we have a very special guest in which would like to stay anonymous. She is a registered nurse working in the greater Toronto area and works within three different hospitals. She has been working since the beginning of the pandemic. She is part of a folk pool nursing department, which allows her to go from the ICU, emerge, and all med surge floors, and has been waiting to have her truth heard for everyone to benefit from. If this is something you'd like to listen to, then stay tuned. Here we go. Thanks for coming on. I really, uh, really appreciate it. No problem. Anytime. Awesome. Well, um, if you can start, I know you don't want your name out there, but um, if you can kind of start, just kind of give us a little bit of information of, uh, you know, your qualifications, who you are. Give us a little background info. So I can't say my name just because I want to stay anonymous, but I am a registered nurse um, and I work in the GTA in three hospitals within the GTA. And um, I work across all departments in the hospital as I'm part of a float pool nursing department. So I work in the ICU, eMERGE, all med surge floors. um, And I've been working since the start of the pandemic. Wow. So I guess you've uh, you've been around. (laughs) (laughs) I have. (laughs) So um, I guess uh, we'll start right from the beginning. So um, I guess when they first announced that there was a pandemic and uh, there was this super deadly virus going around, uh, what were things like in the hospital? Um, During the first wave, things were crazy Um, just because the virus was so new. No one knew anything about it. Um, So it was just a lot of fear and um, healthcare providers wanted to make sure that we were giving the proper health care to everybody just because, again, the virus is so new. We didn't know exactly what it was going to do. So any um, symptoms that you know, were unusual, we would admit these patients. And so the hospitals were overwhelmed. Um, We did clear out a lot of patients that were in hospital for various reasons. So if they weren't, um, or they didn't require urgent care, um, or to be monitored, they would be discharged, um, and to be followed up with their family physician. And then we were prepared to take in um, COVID patients. So we were very, very busy during the first wave and um, during the second and third wave, not so much. So in the in the beginning, when the hospitals were overwhelmed, um, I guess my question to that is, were these people actually, you know, COVID positive or were they just admitting absolutely everybody and anybody who had any sort of symptoms that would even somewhat relate to um, the, the symptoms that would be, you know, quantified as COVID-19? So to answer your question, uh, both. So they would do testing um, and COVID positive patients, once the results were back, we would admit them. Um, but even before the testing got back, because it's not immediate, we would still admit them. 
um, and patients that had any strange symptoms, which we know now, uh, COVID, basically every symptom under the sun is part of COVID, um, <laughs> we would admit them. And that's why we were so overwhelmed because we had all these patients with various symptoms, even though some of them were mild, we, we wouldn't know if COVID was going to okay. make them have a turn for the worse. So we would admit them. Hmm. So I guess that's exactly what it was then in the beginning. They were just yeah. kind of just admitting anybody that had anything that even looked like it. And, yes. uh, you know, but it makes sense, right? I mean, you hear about something that could be a potential respiratory infection that, you know, mimics something, you know, like, uh, like SARS. And, you know, you guys did the right thing. You guys were, you know, well-prepared. So yeah, now, we were cautious. So now, at what point was it that uh, you started to realize that, wait a minute, something is very wrong here. Some like the things are just not adding up. What was that, that, that breaking point, the tipping point for you where you realized that something was wrong? I think it was probably mid first wave when I started realizing that these symptoms weren't severe. Um, honestly, they could have been managed at home. And even now, um, COVID patients that get admitted onto a med surge floor, um, their symptoms can be managed at home because most of the time they have a fever. They just need um, dexamethasone, which is a steroid medication to um, basically decrease their immune system and which in turn decreases the severity of their symptoms and um, a sleeping aid. So hmm. there's no reason for them to be in hospital, but I'll get into the reasons why a little bit later, just a theory that I have. Um, but yeah, like I'm just really frustrated with what's been going on um, because during the first wave, halfway through it, I started seeing a pattern of all these patients not having severe symptoms, but being in hospital and us just being overrun and nurses having to, you know, it's, it's very time consuming to have to go in and out of the patient's room and like putting on all your PPE and then taking it off. If you're in the patient's room, you have all your PPE on, you forget something, you got to take everything off, go get what you need, come back, put everything back on. So that's been a pain in the butt. <laughs> and right, um, right. yeah, like, since the first wave till up till now, I've noticed um, most patients, I'd say like 90% of patients don't need to be in hospital. See, and I think that's where, uh, that's where the people like myself who had been, um, you know, kind of researching this for the amount of time that I have kind of saw this coming. I knew that they were going to need, you know, something that would be able to allow them to have that opening to kind of implement the, you know, their, their sadistic plan that they've had all along and what better way than a virus. I mean, the moment yeah. they said that it was a coronavirus, right. It was kind of like, okay, so respiratory infection, uh, you know, there's, there's like, you know, four strains or whatever that, that contact people every single year and, and do cause infection. Right. So it's yeah. kind of like, you know, let's, let's see what happens. It might be severe. Cause even myself, my son has asthma. So, you know, we, uh, we were cautious in the beginning as well, but it was very quick where I just kept saying, uh, I don't know. They're telling me things like, don't go for a bike ride because it can hit your ride on a particle. And, and it's like, well, no, like UV, the moment that it comes in contact with any sort of UV, any coronavirus, just it's, it's gone. Like outside is never a threat. That's right? correct. So then they would tell us like, okay, well, 
here you go. I want you guys to stay inside. And then they're like, whoops, the ventilation's kind of shitty. Now uh, I want you guys to go outside. And then, you know, the following wave, they're like, mm, come back inside again. So it was yeah. like, so so what exactly do you want me to do here? Why is it that you guys just can't get the message straight? And I think that's where they fucked up. I think they just constantly kept stepping on their own toes. And you see, the, the beauty of this conversation is that you have the actual inside information that, you know, in my situation, sure, I might, you know, have a way with words and kind of, you know, know my stuff, but I don't hold the certificate, right? Yeah. And for whatever reason these days, people don't want to listen to anybody who doesn't hold the quote unquote credentials. So here you are, right? <laughs> so now when these patients get in like now, okay, um, you know what, let's, let's start here. The PCR tests, what do you think of those and, and why, wh why do you think they chose those for this very particular quote unquote virus? Honestly, I can't explain why they chose it, but I know it's very inaccurate. Um, for example, I had a colleague who his entire family had COVID. He works in the ICU and um, he tested seven times and it was negative those seven times. The eighth time he got tested, um, apparently he had it, but he was just asymptomatic. And even with patients uh, in hospital, we do the rapid testing now, and then we do the PCR testing. So most of the time, those two results differ. So the rapid test will either say they're negative or positive, and then the PCR test will be the opposite of that. Why is that? I have no idea because um, I'm not going to speak about a profession that I am not in. So unfortunately, I don't know how the lab technicians work, but I know that they do spin the samples multiple times um, in order to get a result. And the more times you spin it, the more concentrated the sample becomes. So there lies the, you know, false positives or false negatives, the inaccurate uh, results. Wow. So I guess there's a, that is gonna, that's gonna be inherently problematic though, right? Like it seems as though they're constantly spinning this just to try to find the result that they're looking for, depending on, you know, whatever the higher ups are telling them they need. Yeah. So we can get into that a little bit later as well. <laughs> um, but I know like so many people in different professions have stepped up and spoken up and said that PCR testing is not the way to go and it's inaccurate and we shouldn't be using it. Yeah. I mean, the PCR test, the creator of it who won the Nobel prize had said that it, this should never be used ever to diagnose illness. Um, yeah. So th there was obviously an agenda there and I'm just going to add something of my own from my research um, that in 2016, there were actually 62 countries that ordered a ton of PCR tests and a ton of PPE for their hospitals pre this. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't really know if that, uh, you know, tells anybody anything, but it definitely tells me that they were expecting something. Um, so let's get into the nitty gritty in the hospitals. Let's, let's get into, I guess let's, let's kind of skip the first and second wave and let's just talk for all the inf information that you've accumulated up until now, the experiences that you've accumulated up until now, the information that, you know, um, the hospitals being overwhelmed. This is one that everybody gets twisted because I try to explain to people, listen, um, you know, there's been bad flu seasons. 
And since the year 2000, there's been seven of them where the hospitals have been overrun. Nobody ever wore a mask. Nobody ever quarantined. Nobody ever isolated themselves. So what are we doing? Why are they doing this? What's actually going on in the hospitals? So first, I'd like to address um, the fact that hospitals are not overwhelmed. um, And they haven't been overwhelmed for the past few months, actually, during this third wave. Um, ICUs have been pretty much 50% capacity, so it's half empty. Um, And the patients in the ICU are not COVID patients. They're just sick patients that are COVID negative. So I don't know if, you know, what we're hearing, if they're spinning the numbers, but um, by saying like, you know, ICUs are full, um, but are they full with regular sick patients or COVID patients? Because in my experience, it's not COVID patients. And um, during this third wave, I've noticed also that we're admitting patients um, who, again, don't need to be on oxygen. So there's no reason for them to be in hospital. And there's also um, like home care where they can be on oxygen at home, but they're admitting these patients with basically just high fever. That's it, high fever. And again, same treatment, dexamethasone um, and Tylenol and a sleeping aid. That's unreal. So I don't know if they're doing that to inflate the numbers um, just so hospitals can say like, hey, yeah, like this is how many COVID patients we have, but the severity is not mentioned. Yeah. And I think that's the that's the biggest problem here is that they are making it seem as though our ICUs are overwhelmed. Um, However, I do want to ask you this. Is it true or not that an ICU is supposed to run between 90 and 100 percent capacity in order to make the make the money? that the ICU is supposed to generate for the hospital. Yes, that's true. So then and it's always been at 95 to 100% capacity always, every year. Yeah. Always. And and I guess that's where, you know, people get confused because all they've decided to do is put a magnifying glass on how busy the hospital is now. And you know, it, even though it's it's not that busy because I mean, look how much of the hospital is shut down. Yep. So, you know, you you got people dying of cancer, all of their other ailments. Um, you know, my wife also works at a hospital and, you know, even her department, like they've, they've been shutting down all kinds of departments and people aren't getting their treatments and it's absolutely ridiculous. So in these ICUs, how many of these people are you seeing that are coming in that are vaccine injured? I guess that's the question that everybody wants to know here. So during the first and second wave, obviously vaccines were not available to most of the public. Um, healthcare providers have been getting the vaccine since January. Um, but during this quote unquote third wave, um, a lot of patients are coming in to the ICU exactly seven days after having their first shot. I don't know why it's exactly seven days. It's not eight, it's not nine, it's not 10 days. It's always seven days. Um, and they do need to be intubated. They're very, very sick. Um, and I think that has something to do with pathogenic priming. Mm-hmm. You want to, would you like to uh, just kind of go through exactly what pathogenic priming is for those that don't understand that? So in layman's terms, uh, pathogenic priming is basically an overactive immune system caused by a vaccine where 
you have a cytokine storm, which is basically just inflammation, just crazy amounts of inflammation. And that heightens or increases um, your symptoms and the severity of your symptoms. So um, say without the vaccine, you would not have pathogenic priming. Your immune system would be able to fight off the infection like it normally does with every other infection. Um, but with pathogenic priming, you have a cytokine storm and with all the inflammation going on in your body, your symptoms are 10 times worse and um, sometimes more than 10 times worse Where to the point where you need to seek medical help and be admitted into ICU and be intubated. And once you're intubated, your chances of survival are not high at all. So now why is it like, you know, forever, they thought that uh, intubation was the solution, like the end all be all for what was going on right now? Honestly, intubation is, we kind of just do it like willy nilly. A patient may not even require it, but we'll do it anyway. That's and it's insane. just, yeah. Yeah. Now, like who, who gives I'll that order? The physicians. <sighs> I'll tell you a story. So I had a patient, she was on a med surge floor. She's COVID positive, has COVID pneumonia. Um, she was sent down to ICU. And my question was, why is she here? Because she's fairly stable. And um, as you know, with uh, proning, that's what we're doing with COVID positive patients to help them breathe. She was satting. So her oxygen saturation was at a hundred percent when she's on her stomach proning. Mm. When she flipped onto her back, um, which we call supine, she was satting at low eighties. And obviously we don't want that, but she didn't want to comply. So she would prone for 10 minutes and then turn over. I was in there trying to encourage her over and over. She didn't want to prone. So the physician had enough of it. He was tired of it. He's like, you know what? We can't be babysitting her. So let's just intubate her. Even though she, when she prones, she's at a hundred percent saturation, oxygen saturation. So there was really no need for her to be intubated. I mean, we could have put soft restraints on her and kept her in that position, um, which I think is less invasive and it, would be a better alternative to intubating someone because when you intubate someone, you need a whole bunch of staff in there. You need x-ray techs, you need doctors, you need a respiratory therapist, you need a nurse, you need a nurse on the outside to monitor and document everything that's going on minute by minute. And um, the patient is put on paralytics. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. So. In essence, in the beginning, I mean, I, I guess I can kind of see off the bat how, you know, many physicians would have said, okay, well, it's time to intubate people because it's definitely something respiratory. And then people were just dying because all you're doing is damaging the lungs because it wasn't actually the lungs. So now that we know that it's like basically a blood disorder where the blood just can't carry enough oxygen, right? We're starting yeah. to learn that it's absolutely wrong. And that's why you get things like hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin um, remdesivir and, you know, all of these things that repurpose drugs that cost next to nothing and definitely work. Why is it that you guys don't use those things in the hospitals? Honestly, I don't know why, but throughout the first wave up until 
now, um, I have never seen those medications being used. I have spoken with a pharmacist and their excuse, um, and they don't really understand why we're not prescribing it for patients, but they're saying that they're being told um, that there's too many drug contraindications. So like using ivermectin and remdesivir um, interacts with too many other drugs. So they don't want to risk it. But if you do your research, um, yeah. they're actually quite safe. Exactly. Now, um, being in the medical profession, I just want to confirm this with you, even though I know the answer that uh, something like hydroxychloroquine has been one of the gold standard drugs in which they have based the safety of almost all other new drugs on the market on for, uh, you know, it's been around for what, 55 years as an anti-malarial drug in Africa. Yes. So now, you know, we, we have the safety on it. Why is it that, you know, instead of using something like that, they would much rather give these people these, you know, untested mRNA vaccines or where they're using a adenovirus like the J&J vaccine. Why, why do you think they're, you know, deciding to use something that will cost, you know, thousands of dollars to inject somebody with, even though it's untested, instead of sticking with a drug like hydroxychloroquine that only costs 10 cents per tablet? Personally, I think it all has to do with money. Um, because if you do your research and you looked into it, Canada had already like had a contract with multiple suppliers of the vaccine and they had purchased so many. So they're not going to let that all go to waste. And even recently they were saying, you know, trying to rush people in for AstraZeneca because they were just sitting on the shelves ready to expire. But we know AstraZeneca has caused a lot of issues with blood clots. Um, and I don't, I really don't understand why we're not trying um, medications that have been trusted, tried and true and been tested on, gone through the trials. Um, and we're using experimental medications that have no business being used. Right, right. And, and is there any, any vaccine or any jab in particular that you see is causing, you know, more harm than others in the ICUs? Honestly, it's all of them, but because Pfizer has been the leading vaccine that most people want to get, um, I've been seeing most of it associated with Pfizer, even though everyone thinks Pfizer is the safest one out there, it's still causing side effects in people. And um, again, the patients that are coming in seven days after being vaccinated usually are from Pfizer. We get a couple from Astra AstraZeneca. Um, and I Quite honestly, I don't think anyone's getting Moderna. I haven't seen anything related to Moderna mm -hmm. in my hospitals that I work at. Yeah, M Moderna is, uh, I think the problem with it is people kind of underestimated it because it is the mRNA injection, same as Pfizer. And Pfizer is just a more dominant company. Yes, um, exactly. But I do believe that Moderna is the one that holds the patent. So it makes you wonder. It really does make you wonder as to what's going on here. Um Man, there's there's so much. I don't even know uh, kind of like what, what to continue to pinpoint other than, man, the, the hospitals have never been full. I don't know if you know, but we have a lady named Monique Leal who has been going around to all of the hospitals in Ontario and has, you know, a lot of nurses like yourself, doctors, security guards, all of them that are saying, no, like our hospitals just are not overwhelmed. They're not full. It's a ghost town. The only thing that's going on in the hospital is the lights, right? Yep. So in these ICUs now with the, with the ventilators, um, are you, are you guys still, you know, 
very quick to use those or have physicians kind of said, okay, you know, it's kind of time to dial those back and start using treatments that we know work, or are they just constantly still trying to push the ventilators? They're still constantly trying to push the ventilators. And I'm glad you came back to this topic because um, being intubated means you're on a ventilator. And it there's just so many things that can go wrong once you're intubated. So your lungs aren't breathing on their own. The machine is breathing for you. The ventilator is breathing for you. It's doing all the work. So when these patients start coming off of the ventilator, we start weaning them off. We start weaning down their um, paralytic medications they have a very hard time becoming alert and conscious. And most of the time we're just dialing the the paralytic drugs up and down, up and down, just trying to keep them comfortable as they're coming off of the ventilator. And it's, it's very heartbreaking for me to see because these patients are struggling, you know, having a tube down your throat, um, is very uncomfortable. So as they're starting to wake up, they're coughing, they're choking, they're tearing up. You can tell they're, they're experiencing discomfort and pain. And at that point, what do we do? We dial up the paralytic drugs just to keep them comfortable, to keep them a little bit more sedated as they're coming off and being weaned off the ventilator. And then ventilators also cause pneumonia, which again, COVID also causes. So we're trying to treat the pneumonia by ventilating these patients, but then they can also get pneumonia from being intubated. So it's to me, some people do need ventilators. Don't get me wrong because they cannot protect their own airway. So they can't breathe. Those patients do need to be put on ventilators, but for most patients, I I disagree with using ventilators for them. And I don't know if you're aware, but, um, during the first and second wave, we were all so caught up with, we need more ventilators. We need to order and purchase more ventilators. Mm-hmm. There, there have been people claiming to see ventilators in landfills, completely unboxed, yep. brand new in box. Yep. So why? I'm we spent actually all this money, right? Yeah. I'm actually super glad you brought that up. And the, the reason being is they knew that the only way to create the illusion that there was something very, very wrong here was to get something to basically make everybody focus on, on a respiratory infection. So what did they do? They had said, well, we need all of these ventilators and this is the only way out of this. And this is the only way that we're going to help people breathe because it's a respiratory infection, knowing damn well that this entire thing was created in a lab right? From gain of function research, Dr. Fauci yep. has just been busted finally, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know why politics takes so long. Like they could have just came and asked any one of us a year ago and we would have been able to tell you this is complete bullshit, right? But then, you know, you see these things in landfills. It's because, well, none of them mattered. They knew this. I mean, I don't know if you've heard, but in the States, they were, ca- they were, they were like kidnapping homeless people and sedating them and then throwing them on ventilators just to create the illusion that you know, this, this is a, a pandemic. So I actually have another, another, you know, something I want to ask you about Sure. with the, um, I, I mean, this boggles my mind. So it's even hard for me to ask you with the 12 year olds, right? 12 mm-hmm. and up now being able to get these, uh, you know, th- these, these jabs by themselves, no consent required from the parents, nothing. Are you noticing that the children coming in are starting to trend upward? 
Yes, we are starting to get uh, younger patients um, and they have inflammation symptoms. So, um, I mean, the CDC had released a statement saying that it's not safe for children. But then the next day, the Canadian government says, yep, let's go ahead with this and start vaccinating children 12 and up. And I want to add, um, when you're dealing with children and you're giving them medication, even something as simple as Tylenol, it's based on weight. It's based on body weight. You calculate the dose by their body weight. So that will give you the correct dosing. With the vaccine, there is, it's a one dose fits all for all children, no matter if the child is 30 pounds or 80 pounds or hundred pounds, it's the same dose for every child. So my theory is that's the reason why we're seeing kids having side effects from, from the vaccine. Unreal. I mean, personally, I would say zero is the dose they require kids, kids that are like 18 and younger, I agree. Just, just are not affected period. I agree. I mean, look, and the research has said, you know, children are not the ones getting sick from this. And if they do, it's very mild or they're, they're asymptomatic. So the, there's no reason to be vaccinating our children. And what's scary is, again, like this vaccine has been rolled out so quickly and it's being pushed and pushed and pushed. And you have to ask yourself, mm-hmm. why? Why is there such a huge campaign to get everybody vaccinated, giving them ice cream, giving children ice cream to get them to be vaccinated? Yeah. That to me is just wrong. Like, why are we bribing people and children to get vaccinated? Now, that is also in the medical industry and law that is called coercion, is it not? It is. <laughs> and are you allowed to do that in medicine? No. Wow. All our patients have to have informed consent. And my stance on the vaccination is that it's not good for you. We don't know what's going to happen to you two years from now, three years from now, and potentially 10 years from now. But what I am, my theory is that I'm predicting that hospitals will become overwhelmed, it will become overrun by patients who have cancer, autoimmune diseases, or organ failure like two, three years from now, five years from now. That, that makes complete sense. Um, now, I don't know, like, I know that you nurses and stuff are, are always just inherently busy people. Um, so I don't know if you've had much time to search into any of the doctors that are on the front lines of this, like the Carrie Maday and, you know, Andrew Kaufman and the uh, Thomas Cowens, the Sherry Tenpennies. Have you, have you been listening to any of what they're saying at all? I have. And everything they're saying makes absolute sense to me. So listening to Thomas Cowan speak about this and the actual theory on the way this virus has never followed any of coaches postulates. Do you think that this is just a, a ramped up pneumonia? Do you think that these masks are actually what is causing all of the respiratory illness that is happening now? And they're just calling it COVID. I don't know about that part but I do know most people that wear masks don't wear it responsibly so you know like you'll see masks on people's car floors and then they'll put that on and walk around with it for a few Mm -hmm. hours that's got to have something to do with you know lung infections of any kind Um, and a lot of my colleagues have spoken up and said hey you know like when we originally during the first wave when we were putting on these masks we felt fine now everyone's like as soon as you put it on you get a runny nose you start getting like an itch in the back of your throat Mm -hmm. you're starting to hyperventilate and 
I don't know why exactly, but I believe it has to do with, you know, excess CO2 and then the fibers of where these masks are coming from. Like these, these suppliers of these, of the PPE, I've seen videos of masks coming from India, China, where, where they're making it is not sterile. Well, they, they are also like, uh, you know, they've tested these things and found like, you know, more gelins and asbestos yep. and all of these things right now. I, I personally already know that this is this is part of the plan. They are trying to make even your personal protective equipment make you sick. Now, I would actually like your opinion on the mask. Why in the fuck? I just like my mind is blown, right? Like I, I just I don't wear a mask solely because I'm the kind of person where I'm sorry, but I, I, I'm a healthy guy, right? Like I make sure that I, you know, I'm very holistic. I take care of my body. I make sure that I'm always hydrated. I always get enough sun, right? And I just like, I, I don't worry. You know what I mean? Like there, there's no yeah. need for even, you know, HCQ or ivermectin or, you know, anything. Because I just, I believe that, you know, our, our bodies are amazing. Like we don't need those things. You nourish your body, your body nourishes you. So why the mask? Why? What is the logic? I think that's where I should get at with you. What is the logic behind the mask? And why are they so convinced that this works? Honestly, I don't know. I think the mask, as soon as it was, as it was introduced, um, it was based off of, you know, droplet um, and possibly airborne, um, like COVID could possibly be droplet or airborne, which we know it's droplet and the CDC eventually came out and said it's airborne. Um, but they haven't done further testing to see how effective these masks are. So once they, you know, they did their one or two tests and determined yeah, I guess masks work. They kind of just stuck with it because one, they don't want to look stupid and, you know, revert back on what they've already told the whole world. And two, um, it's about control. And again, money, because if you remember, uh, masks were a hot commodity and to be able to find a box of masks, like there was price gouging. So at one point I remember seeing a box of 30 masks go for $100, $150. And hospitals did have a hard time finding suppliers for PPE. Um, and I've, I've overheard managers speak about it and say, hey guys, like you might wanna reuse your N95s and your masks um, because we're having a hard time finding suppliers and we're running out. So again, it's just money driven, right? And even now, like masks are still expensive. Gloves are still expensive. Um, gowns are still expensive. So I think, I think that's the reason. It's just money motivated. That's unreal. But I mean, hey, who didn't know, right? Yep. <laughs> we know at this point that if you just follow the money, then that's exactly how you get yourself, you know kind of out of this mess or educate yourself. I mean, you literally just follow the financial tracks. Yeah. And I think with the masks um, and gloves, we're still having a hard time trying to budget correctly in the hospital um, because every week I go to work, it's a different type of mask. 
and it feels different because in the hospital, we're supposed to wear a level two or a level three surgical mask. Some of them are labeled a level two or a level three, but they definitely feel like a level one. So how protected Mm. are we if this virus is so dangerous, you know, and I've seen different brands of gloves being used. And originally uh, there's one specific brand that we use and now almost every single hospital I've worked at out of the three um, we've switched over to a Chinese brand where there's no English wording on the box. It's all Chinese characters. That the irony in that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Is, is pretty wild to me. I guess we can get into um, a little bit of the, I guess, lack of treatment that people are receiving. And, um, you know, they aren't allowed to go see their specialists and stuff. So uh, what kind of patients are you seeing now that are in the ICUs um, that, that aren't COVID? So most of my patients in ICU are not COVID positive. Um, And it's really sad because the patients that are coming into ICU now um, are dealing with things such as cancer. Um, I'll tell you a story about one of the patients I had most recently, a few weeks ago, I'd say two weeks ago, Um, she was brought into ICU because she was having seizures. We ran a bunch of tests. Uh, We did CT scans, MRIs, and um, x-rays, ultrasounds, the whole everything. So we found cancer, uh, stage four metastatic cancer, all throughout her body um, and at the base of her skull and in her spinal cord. And that was the reason why uh, she was having seizures. She's very young. She's 45 years old. She has a 16 year old boy. Um, And last year in March, she went for a mammogram um, and they had found abnormalities, but they had told her, you know, it's probably fine. It's nothing. Um, And to come back six months later for a follow up. Because of the lockdowns, she was unable to go for her follow-up appointment, which she would have had another mammogram done. At that point, they probably would have figured out that the um, abnormality was a tumor that was growing. If we weren't in lockdown, interventions would have been done. She would probably be fine right now. But because she could not go for her follow-up appointment, she is now dying. There is no cure um, for her. Um, and, you know, the, the end result for her is basically death. There's nothing we can do. It's too late. Um, and a lot of patients are coming in with the same story. And they're all quite young. But the results of the lockdowns have been so horrible for so many patients that needed, you know, to see a proper healthcare provider to be admitted into hospital, but we weren't admitting anybody that wasn't severely sick. So even though you, you know, you have a growing tumor, it's, it's not enough. You know, you have to have respiratory symptoms or GI symptoms. And that to me is ridiculous because we're admitting patients with GI symptoms, such as vomiting and diarrhea and a fever and nausea, but Uh, people that require cancer treatments are being left out 
until they have stage three cancer, you know, and at that point, what else can we do for them? We push chemo, we push radiation, and even then the, the chances of survival are very slim. So the real pandemic here are all the people that require surgery um, and they're not getting it. I would say that's quite essential. Like that's, that would be an essential surgery, but mm-hmm. you know, hip replacements and knee replace, replacements um, were not considered essential, which to me is, is crazy. Like that's insane. Cause these people need that. You need that for a quality of life for survival and they weren't getting it. And now they're dying. So I I guess in essence, the lockdowns are really the pandemic here. Yes, absolutely. Um, So I actually want to know, you know, with all this going on and a lot of nurses being, you know, the people that they are, a lot of you guys got into this profession because you, you know, inherently love helping people that that's why you guys are here that's that's why 90 percent of you started doing what you're doing um so do you notice that nurses are sticking around are they leaving are they following the narrative what's going on there with them nurses are leaving in droves it's been a huge exodus of nurses um like at one of the hospitals i work at 10 nurses left in a month they quit wow um one nurse actually left without having another job lined up. That's how bad it was. And the reason for it is because either we want to speak up and we can't. So, you know, there's that guilt of basically contributing to the narrative, right? Without having a chance to speak up and tell people the truth. And a lot of us can't continue working like that. Why can't you guys speak up? we will automatically get fired and lose our job or uh, we'll get a warning. And I think that's what's happening now because we can't afford to lose any more nurses. Um, We'll get a warning, but they will literally monitor everything you do and they will give you shitty assignments. Excuse my language. Um, To the point where you, you want to leave, like they make it so difficult for you that you want to leave it. you, You go to work and you're miserable. So now with that being said, though, like, is there any paperwork that you guys have filled out? Have there been like email memos? Has there, are they like literally threatening you guys? The managers have not outright threatened us, but, you know, as soon as we say anything against the narrative, if fellow nurses agree with you, they'll kind of be like, you know, you shouldn't really speak about this out loud. Um, some people are not like-minded. And then the nurses that are with the narrative, they'll just completely think you're an idiot. They'll think you're an anti-vaxxer, a conspiracy theorist, and they'll shun you. That is unreal. Now, I have heard and, I, and I've seen the, the, you know, a couple emails where the, um, I guess, the Ontario Nurses Association were quite literally sending messages out to physicians and uh and nurses and letting them know, like, if you go against this narrative at all, toast, like you're just, you're gone. Like your career is straight up gone. I also know, uh, you know, a couple of nurses, one of them in which I'm trying to have on here, Kristen Nagel, who spoke out again against the, this entire narrative and they got rid of her. 
I mean, they're oh, just yeah. left, left, right, and center. They just you're right on the chopping block the moment you speak out. So, um, with all these nurses leaving, and you know, first of all, with those nurses leaving, and and the fact that they keep you know firing nurses, and you know that the government just seems to think that it's okay to just get rid of huge quantities of of our you know frontline uh, medical professionals. If we're in a pandemic, why are you doing that? Um, you guys must be burnt out. You guys must, you know, be absolutely toast because you guys are, you know, it's like I've been saying forever. You guys aren't overwhelmed. You're understaffed. Yep. We have always been in a shortage of nurses, even before the pandemic. And then with the pandemic, um, a lot of factors played into the added burnout. So being asked to come in and work extra hours, um, lots more paperwork to do, lots of discharges and admissions in like one shift. So we'll have three discharges and like two admissions in one shift. And that's a lot of paperwork we need to do. Um, And then a lot of our admissions are coming from long-term care homes, where again, that requires more paperwork than the average person coming from home being admitted into hospital Hmm. and long-term care homes, the privatized ones, um, they're, they're horrible. Like just absolutely. They should not exist. They should not exist. The government needs to put their foot down and, you know, put government officials in there. They need to, because the government needs to see what's happening in long-term care homes. But I will touch on that a little bit later. The reason for the burnout is we receive all these seniors or um, there are younger people in long-term care homes as well. We receive them in hospital for things not COVID related, um, a fall or a seizure or a blood clot not related to COVID or the vaccine, Um, strokes, aneurysms, um, respiratory issues, just anything, anything, fractures, whatever we get them, we fix them. They're all good, good to go. We want to discharge them, but we can't because the long-term care homes will not take them back. And their excuse is we don't know how to quarantine them. We don't know how to isolate them because a lot of the privatized long-term care homes share beds. Like one room will have two or three residents. So there's no way to isolate them. What are you going to use a curtain? Cause that's usually how they divide the room. Right. So they'll use that as as an excuse. And I think that's why the numbers are are, you know, elevated when they when they say hospitals are are overwhelmed. There are points where we were overwhelmed, but it was full of healthy people that were ready to be discharged, but couldn't be discharged because we will not discharge someone unless they have somewhere to go. So we will keep them for as long as possible until they have somewhere to go. So they've, they've put you guys in a position where they're going to overwork you, understaff you, and then, you know, now all of a sudden you don't have the ability to take other patients that need your Actual service yes. because there's, you know, they're not taking them back. Now, how does that work though? Because, you know, in a long-term care facility, typically people are paying for that stay there. So what happens to those people now? I mean, if I paid for my fucking parents to be at a long-term care facility, they go to the hospital, they better, you better bet your ass that they, they're going back there. Uh, how do they have the ability to just not take these people back under this bullshit premise 
that, you know, oh, we, we don't know how to isolate them. I mean, it seems to me like they've been isolating old folks just fine, right? They've had no problem making sure that they can't see their family and that people are dying alone. So in my eyes, that is the biggest crock ever. Yeah, so I don't know um, personally how they can do it, but I've heard from family members of these seniors that are completely healthy in hospital, we fix them, they're good, um, saying that they lost the bed, that these long-term care homes, because their resident has been in hospital for X amount of time, um, basically forfeited their bed. So now they have an empty bed and they take on a new resident in the long-term care home. So the resident that came from the long-term care home that is now in hospital has to reapply for another long-term care home that will take them. However, long-term care homes, privatized ones, I'm not sure about government-run ones, um, can determine who they want to take. So say um, a resident or, a, sorry, a senior patient is... Um, like has Alzheimer's or dementia, might be aggressive, might be violent, long-term care homes, privatized ones, have the right to refuse to take that patient. So nurses are getting stuck with these patients that are aggressive, that are confused, that are violent. We're being physically abused at work and there's nothing in place for us. Management won't do anything. And it's been... The, the increase of violence amongst nurses has increased dramatically since the pandemic has started. I keep hearing of nurses um, getting attacked by patients, and I myself have also been attacked by a patient that is confused. Um, and we can't hold it against the patient because, again, they're confused. Um, but it's not right that there's nothing in place to protect us. Like, when something happens, like I got punched in the arm, um, when we report it, management always says, what could you have done differently? There was a nurse that got kicked across the room. She got kicked in the chest, literally flew across the room by a patient and nothing was done. And then the following day, another nurse got kicked in the chest by the same patient and she too flew across the room. So, you know, like that's the reason why nurses are so burnt out. We it's, it's unfair to us. We don't go to work to be abused. If you think about, you know, this happening to a police officer, you think that would fly? That would not fly. Even if the patient is confused, like they would not accept that. Jesus, that is fucked up. And that's just me being real. Like that's, I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, you know, they, they praise you guys on the news, right? They make you guys sound as though you are the frontline heroes and, you know, you guys are going through so much, but they can't even put something simple in place. I mean, for these, for these people, can, can you not just like, you know, send them to the overflow facilities, right. And, and have, you know, professionals deal with them. I mean, with what you're saying about the long-term care facilities though, um, I don't know if you've heard, but like, you know, the military had come into a lot of them and they're realizing that a lot of the death that has happened there wasn't from the virus. It was from dehydration, malnutrition and physical neglect. abuse, neglect, because yeah. I mean, we've all known for a long time in these long term care facilities, especially ones that take uh, people that are confused and are, you know, mentally, you know, kind of declining uh, <clears throat> Joe Biden. Um <laughs> For those kind of people, and they're beating the shit out of these people, right? Yep. Like, these people are abused in some of these homes, 
And I think it's one of those things, right? It's kind of like a blessing in disguise where now we're actually trying to expose everything. And I, I think that's what's making it so hard for all of us is that the veil is being lifted on every aspect. But in the long-term care facilities, it really does, you know, strike a nerve with me how they treat these, like our elderly. And then at least, you know, what's come from this is that it's finally getting exposed. So people hopefully will be held accountable at some point. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely not fair for you guys to have to deal with that. Now, how many patients would you say are constantly in the hospitals that could fully be sent back to hundreds. LTCs? Hundreds? hundreds, hundreds. Um, there is one patient that has been in the hospital since September of last year Whoa. and she's aggressive. She's violent. She's confused. Um, and she wanders. So, you know, to have her put into long-term care of your privatized, why would you want a resident where you have to have, you know, 24 seven supervision over them compared to a patient that's, you know, independent and aware of themselves, like self-aware, um, who, who won't wander, who won't be attacking the nurses or the PSWs, right? As a long-term care owner, like I'm, I'm not a long-term care owner, but I'm saying like, if, if I were one, I would definitely accept a patient that is less, that requires less monitoring and less interventions, less medications than one that, you know, you need basically one-on-one -on -one care with. And that's exactly what's happening. So they're basically <sighs> using you guys to babysit the ones that they don't want to deal with. And no. that's it. But now here's what I want to know. And I'm not sure if you can explain this or not. But you're saying that there's hundreds. And now are some of these people in the ICU as well, just randomly taking up a bed? Uh, no, not in ICU, because once they're stable, um, they get moved to a med surge floor. But they, will, they can stay on a med surge floor indefinitely until we have somewhere to send them to. So either that be home with family members or long-term care. Or if neither of those are options, we would get in contact or send a social worker to consult with the patient and the patient's family to, to determine where to send them. But again, if the social worker determines there is nowhere to send them, they will stay in hospital indefinitely. That is insane. So I'd actually like to, you know, speak to somebody about, you know, how the, how the entire payment thing goes again, because if I'm paying you to take care of, you know, my, my parent or grandpa or whatever the, the case may be, I mean, for, for you to not take them back is that, that seems Insane. absurd yeah. to me, man. I, I don't, I don't even really know what to say about that other than I definitely need to start digging in that direction. Um, I also want to ask you this question. Um, are you aware at all of the people who have been, you know, marked down as COVID on their death certificates or constantly being marked as COVID, even though, you know, it, it, that's not what it is? Because I do know a person, for instance, like there's plenty of these stories of people who tested positive on their drive home, got into a car accident, died, and then still they were marked as COVID-19. Like, why are they doing this with the tests and, and why is it in the hospitals? They're, they're making it seem as though every positive is somehow a dangerous case. Like 
if you look at the way herd immunity works, right. And they've kind of fucking twisted the way, you know, they're saying now that herd immunity only happens with vaccinations. Herd immunity has nothing yeah, to false. do with a vaccination. <laughs> yeah. It has to do with everybody getting the virus, right? And particularly yep. kids, because kids would be the ones that would weaken the virus, right? Because that's just yep. how kids are. They have more T cells, right? So mm-hmm. I don't. why is it that they have this, this lust to constantly use case numbers? Why the fuck do we keep running on case numbers? They don't mean anything. So what is it about them? That is that is like, is is it financial? Do you notice that they're getting, you know, more money if they admit a patient into ICU that they can write down as COVID? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I don't know why they're doing it, but I can say from my own experience that, yes, if a patient, say, has stage four cancer and they have COVID and they die, um, they'll mark it as a COVID death. Even though everybody knows it's not the COVID that killed the patient, it's because they have stage four cancer. And like, when is it the physician that signs off on that paper? Yes. And do do these people look fucking happy with themselves when they're signing these off? Some of them just do it. They're kind of robotic. Um, And others have spoken up. But again, because of you know, your colleagues looking at you funny. If you go against the narratives, people don't, they, you know, they just do what they have to do because everyone needs to understand it's so much easier said than done for, for you guys that don't work in healthcare to say, just speak up about the truth then. But we can't because a lot of us are in our thirties or forties. We don't want to go back to school. We'll get fired from our jobs. We'll lose our license. And this is our bread and butter. We, we don't have the time, the money or the resources to go back to school and do something else. And a lot of us chose this profession because we love what we do. We love taking care of others. And it's, it's putting us in a, in a very tough position because, you know, like myself personally, I've had patients ask me, oh, hey, what do you think about the vaccine? And I am against the vaccine, but I will give them informed information um, where I'll talk about, you know, pathogenic priming, you know, the side effects I've seen, um, how it's still, you know, in a trial phase, and for them to really think about it. I tell them, you know, do your own research, really think about the pros and cons before you decide on what to do. I won't judge you if you decide to get the vaccine or not to get the vaccine. However, it's your body, it's your choice, and you should do your own research. Like, please do your own research. And that's, that's what I leave it with. I ended off that way. I don't say yes, get it or no, don't get it. Um, I leave it up to the patient, but I inform them. Yeah. And that's all I can do as a nurse. And I think that's the biggest problem is the informed consent. I mean, I know with a lot of these vaccinations as well, like there's not even the, you know, the, 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 um, the insert in the box. Yep. which is absurd to me, right? And while they say, oh yeah, all you got to do is scan the QR code and it'll take you to the website. It's like, well, no, I want you to be able to explain to me. I don't want to have to go do my own research. You're the professional. You tell me what's in exactly. this. But they don't know. So this takes exactly. me to a question that um, I actually want to ask you. Uh, when you're doing your medical schooling to become a nurse or a doctor, I'll ask you about the nurse because obviously that's, that's what you know. Do you find it difficult to be able to ask questions or kind of, you know, step away from the narrative? And is there almost like a, 
um, you, you know, resistance. If you're a person who tries to ask a little bit more than you should, do they just tell you things like, oh, well, you know, this would be say this vaccine or, or this injection, you give this one, this happens. You never ask questions. Absolutely. Um, there's a thing among nurses where nurses eat their young. And even while I was in nursing school, if I asked too many questions or, um, you know, I do my own research and I ask a nurse that may not know the answer, I get shut down, absolutely shut down. Um, and even now it's, it's like the majority will think one way. And if you're the outlier, they will all come for you. So it's hard for you to speak up, to ask questions. I'm not even saying, you know, this vaccine will be horrible forever. They might make it safe eventually at some point. And at that point, you know, I would recommend people to go get it. But for now, it's unsafe. We, we're still in the trial phase. But, you know, as soon as I, I start mentioning facts and research and articles and things like that, nurses will shut me down. They'll just simply say, that's not how it works, but they don't explain their side of things. Now, in regards to vaccines in general, do they let you guys know, uh, like in your training, what is in these vaccinations that, you know, you guys are told to give or, or take for that matter? I mean, you guys need your tuberculosis. You guys need your flu shots. Um, do they, do they even let you know what's in those? Because look, I'm not anti-vax. I'm just I'm like, I, I'm, I'm one of those people that I will never get one. And I will no longer ever, ever let my two young kids get another one. Because I mean, your vaccine is supposed to be, you know, something where you take either a dead virus or part of a virus, you mix it with a toxin, you throw it in, and then my body is supposed to recognize it, develop the antibodies so that I could fight it off when it comes in the future. Correct. So yes. why do you need to suspend it in things like mercury and aluminum and all of these neurotoxins and all of these it just, it doesn't make sense to me that for instance, the moment a baby comes out of a woman, you want to hit it with a shot of vitamin K that has, you know, how many micrograms of aluminum that they can't purge out of their body until their gallbladder forms when they're two. Like, do, do they even tell you guys that, or do they just give you a schedule and tell you, this is what you follow. And that's that. They give us a schedule. They don't talk about the ingredients of a vaccine. They don't talk about the manufacturing process. None of that. They just say like, hey, at this age, this child needs this shot. At this age, um, the child then needs this shot. Um, but they don't go into it at all. So with that being said, I mean, you, you look at the Amish community, for instance, who doesn't vaccinate their children. The odds of an, an, or, uh, an Amish family having a child with autism is almost unheard of. Do you notice that autism rates are going through the fucking roof since the vaccine schedule has been picked up? I have actually. Um, and again, the, the vaxxers will say, um, you know, correlation does not equal causation. But it does. But you got to connect the dots <laughs> at some point. You know what I'm saying? And I'm yeah. not an anti-vaxxer. I am fully vaccinated. I just don't want this one. Yeah. Yeah. And I've noticed that a lot of people were against this vaccine, but, you know, all their friends are getting it and their friends are fine. So they feel pressured to get it. Um, and that's what happened with my parents. At first, I had told them, um, you know, I don't trust this vaccine. I explained why. Um, and they completely agreed with me. And then, you know, my dad works in a factory and um, 
all his colleagues got in. He's like, look, they're all fine. So, you know, now I'm like the black sheep and I I don't want to lie to people and say I have it when I don't. And so he got vaccinated. Same thing with my mom. Shit. And it's crazy because all the things that you hear are always, I just got it for work. I got it for travel or, you know, the excuse like, oh, I got it to keep others safe. Well, now we're finding out that you're transmitting a spike protein and what's that doing to others? You're keeping nobody safe. Pfizer acknowledged that it's a self vaccine, like it's a a self-spreading vaccination, right? So, I mean, it's, it's one of those things, like, where do you draw the line? You know, it's not safe, but what do you say, right? I mean, you sound like an individual who understands, you know, the Canadian charter of rights and you understand that people have Liberty. Like if you feel that it's going to help you, or if, if you just come to the conclusion that it is something that you would like to do, then go ahead. But don't you want to know the risks? Because I'm convinced, and this is just me. I'm convinced that, you know, I think at least minimum half of the doses are simply placebo. I don't think that all of them are full of the, you know, the technologies that they're putting out there. I just, I have a hard time believing it because all of the animals that they've studied with these vaccinations have died. Yeah. Right. Like all Mm -hmm. of them, not like most of them, every single fucking one. And they've done thousands of animals. I mean, the ferrets did okay. Right. The ferrets, they, they got the vaccine. They were OK. And then the moment, the moment they were reintroduced to a coronavirus in the wild, that was it for them. So yep. what makes people think that's not going to happen to them? Right. But monkey see, monkey do these days. So how do you deal with a situation like that? What would you tell, um, you know, people who have gone through that that same scenario where a family member wants to get it? You know better. So you try to tell them not to and then they go and do it anyway. How do we how do we, you know, maybe kind of get them to not take something in which we have no studies on? Honestly, it's, it's so difficult because again, I couldn't prevent my parents from getting it. They were so dead set on getting the vaccine because all their friends have gotten it. And it's to the point where like the peer pressure becomes so much that, you know, data and research and, you know, information is just, it goes out the window. They don't care about it because they don't want to be the only ones not vaccinated. And I've, I've told them, I'm like, Hey, this vaccine does not protect against variants. Like it may protect against the UK variant, but you know, what happens if you catch the Brazilian variants or the Indian variants or the South African variants, like you don't know. Right. And research has come out saying that um, the Indian variants can outsmart the vaccine and basically evade it. And with these patients coming into the ICU seven days after getting their first shot, one, um, they're testing COVID positive. And then they have all these severe symptoms where they need to be intubated and put on all these medications for, you know, to paralyze them, paralytic agents. Um, And you have to question, is this because of pathogenic priming? Because they're testing positive for COVID and their symptoms are horrible and they're at risk of dying. Is it because their immune system is going into overdrive because of the vaccine? And people have to understand once you get this vaccine, you cannot get it out of your body. It literally becomes embedded in your genes. Yeah. There's nothing you can do to detox yourself from this vaccine. And people will argue, you know, this vaccine has um, been researched and, you know, in the making being developed for 20 something years, but it's the first time that we've ever used it on people and mass amounts of people like 
the whole world, you know, like this is so unethical to me. It's completely crazy. We don't know what's going to happen to people two, three years from now, because again, this is still in the trial phase. People get confused and say, you know, well, the government approved it. It's not approved. It's under emergency and use. There's a difference. Mm-hmm. Right. Health Canada has not approved it. The FDA has not approved it. It's being used under emergency news. But where is the emergency? Yes. Yes. And, and, and I, I, think I just that... want to add. Go ahead. Sorry. I just want to add, you know, now they're there's redirecting the fear mongering and saying you know younger patients are being admitted into hospital um Mm -hmm. yeah they are testing positive for covid but these younger patients have comorbidities it's so rare to have a patient that is completely healthy testing positive for covid and dying from it Mm -hmm. these younger patients either have hypertension they're obese um high cholesterol diabetes you know, they have other stuff going on. Yeah. So these are the quote unquote younger patients that are dying from COVID now. You know, you you never hear about why don't they talk in depth about what these young patients are like, their lifestyles, their their health background, you know? They just mm-hmm. say young people are dying from COVID now, point blank period. But what's what's their their medical background? What do they have? Right. I had a really young guy be admitted into hospital. He was 28 and obese, hypertension, but he didn't need to be put on oxygen. So again, these numbers um, are being inflated. We're accepting these patients that don't need to be in hospital. You don't even need oxygen therapy. You were prescribed Tylenol, Zopiclone, which is a sleeping aid, dexamethasone, six milligrams, vitamin D. Let's uh let let's talk about that. So, uh, it's it's pretty easy to know that vitamin D. If your level of vitamin D is low, you will get sick. You are yes. much more susceptible to all cause mortality. Let me repeat that. If your vitamin D is low, you are much more susceptible to all cause mortality. It is vital to human health period. That's why there is a sun. That's why we need it. Or if you Mm -hmm. don't get enough of it, you should supplement with it, period. So why is it if this is all about our fucking health, then why is it they are not saying anything, not a fucking word about your health at all. Not one quote about it. Not one time have they said, get outside, exercise, drink your water, make sure you're getting vitamin C, make sure you're getting your vitamin D, eat healthy, make sure that you're, you you know, not eating fast foods. Why is it that the only thing they're allowing you to do is skip the dishes from fast food, stay in your house and recycle your own air, wear a mask. Why don't they tell you about vitamin D? Why is that? I've been asking the same question because again, every patient that gets admitted um, because they're COVID positive gets put on vitamin D. I've seen anywhere from a thousand milligrams to 6,000 milligrams of vitamin D for these patients. Okay. Um, And literally every single one of them, COVID positive, gets vitamin D. I have been working. And what does that do for them the moment they get that? It boosts their immune system. Naturally. So I've been asking the same question since the beginning. um, With, like, all these lockdowns and the stay-at-home order, you, like, 
it's frowned upon for you to even go out in your backyard. That's insane to me. The sun is out there. Your body produces vitamin D naturally. It synthesizes it from the sun. Um, so why are we in a stay at home order? We can't even go outside, can't go for a hike, can't go for a walk, socially distance, you know, because that's important. Um, but when you're outside, you're naturally healthier. You have fresh air, you get vitamin D, you're active, which again, also boosts your immune system naturally. And having these gyms closed down for over a year now, over a year and a half, um, all these people are gaining weight. And again, obesity with COVID is not good. It's not, it's not a good outcome. So the government has been saying this has been about your health. We're, we're worried for your health. We want to promote your health. But everything they're doing is against your health. Mental health is on the increase. It's, it's skyrocketing. It's insane. Our mental health department in all three hospitals that I work at are at full capacity. We cannot take any more patients. Suicide rates are insane right now. There are young kids telling their parents like, hey, I'm having some crazy thoughts right now. Children. Yeah. Who are six, seven, they should be happy. You know, if you're in a stable home, there's no reason for you to be depressed, but they're depressed because they don't have a routine anymore. Their sleep cycles are all out of whack. And again, that affects your immune system. People don't have a routine anymore. They have no purpose to get out of bed. They, you know, you stay home, you watch Netflix all day, skip the dishes, Uber eats, whatever it may be. But this is all against you know, protecting your immune system mm-hmm. and vitamin C. I suggest everyone take vitamin C and vitamin D with vitamin C. You literally cannot overdose on vitamin C. It's a water soluble vitamin, whatever your body doesn't need. It, it gets rid of. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And, and um, maybe, maybe let's end off the last five minutes on something like that. What can people do to, um, prevent themselves from getting, you know, uh, the, the worst set of symptoms from COVID give us a little bit of guidance as to what these people can do and then leave us off on a, uh, a more, a, a brighter note for the, for the people listening. So myself and a lot of my friends, acquaintances who have been taking vitamin D since the beginning of this pandemic, because, you know, it was reported on the media that it would help. So we did that. And then now they never mention it anymore, but that's besides the point. None of us have ever tested positive for COVID. We have never been sick. Um, and I, it's because of the vitamin D, the vitamin C, take some zinc, get on a sleep schedule um, and eat healthy, exercise at home, exercise in your backyard, go for a hike, just go outside that will do you wonders and maintain a healthy, active lifestyle and eat well, and you will literally be fine. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I definitely uh, thank you for coming on. And um, one of these days, I'm going to have to have you on again, um, being somebody that's in that medical profession. And, you know, there was a lot that there's definitely a whole lot that I wanted to, uh, you know, interject and say, but this, uh, this particular episode is more about you and what's going on in the hospitals and, um, you know, stuff like that, but we're definitely going to have to come on again. And, uh, I actually want to, you know, pose different perspectives on a couple of things and just to pick your brain on it. I mean, you definitely know a lot. Um, and again, I just, 
I'm super grateful for you that, uh, that you came on. And, uh, I definitely hope that there are more nurses that are willing to step up and speak up. And if you do know any more that, uh, you know, would like to speak up and just would like to either stay anonymous or have their names known, it really doesn't matter. You let me know. I will gladly have these people on because I feel like it's you guys that are going to win this war. It's you guys that are there that, uh, you know, are seeing what is going on and you're seeing what's happening in the hospital. And then you're seeing the same lie on the TV about what's happening in the hospital. So yeah. at the end of the day, you guys are the ones that we need. Uh, you guys are the, you know, the, the, the true backbone of this movement as far as I'm concerned. So I thank you very much for coming on. You're welcome back anytime. I hope you have an amazing rest of your night. Thank you for having me, Eric. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. You can reach me on Instagram at fr33domfr0ntline. That's Freedom Frontline on Instagram. You can also reach me on Telegram at Freedom Frontline. I'll be happy to take your inquiries there as well. Till next time, this is the Freedom Frontline podcast.